Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks for tuning in and thank you for tuning in for the Question Time special. For those of you who saw that title and thought that I was hosting a kind of BBC Question Time or that it was going to be some form of Prime Minister's questions, it'll be better than both of those, I can promise you. Now, what we're going to do, if it's all right with all of you, is navigate some of the themes whirling around us via some great questions, a summary for all of you of the uh, Patreon Zoom that we did last week. We did a live Zoom and a summary of some of the questions that I weren't able to get to during that time together and other questions that have been emailed in over recent days. So um, that's coming up and it will be a way in which we make sense of it all through the points and questions. A couple of notices before then, if that's okay with all of you. First of all, as the summer recess intensifies. We're at the early elements of it. We'll be doing something a little different with the podcast each week, but it will be here with you each week. And if you subscribe, it arrives by magic into your uh, podcast. You can do it with any of them, you know, the iPhone one or uh, or Spotify and all the others. It's on all the platforms, every single damn one. So um, it will arrive as normal. And those of you who are in Patreon or sign up to Patreon. Uh, I mentioned this last week, you're going to get the bonus of one of the Edinburgh shows live. And talking of Edinburgh, it's coming up live from August the 13th, every day, a different show at the Edinburgh Festival. And you can get the tickets on the blurb for this podcast. And um, also, of course, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival website, where they sell tickets for the 25,000 shows that are going to be on at the Edinburgh Festival. I can't believe it's come upon us so quickly. And during this uh, period, say the podcast will continue, but take a break from emailing questions unless you've just got to do it for your own cathartic um, purposes, because there will be fewer questions in our weekly gatherings together. It'll all kick in again as normal uh, in September when the uh, recess ends. So there'll be some great podcasts coming up quite excited but probably won't have time for the questions element but if you want to ask questions there will be a question time section at the live shows and there will also be one when god the start of the new political year when uh, there's a live show at king's place on september the 13th and you can get tickets for that at the king's place website that's a london show first one there for ages I think we'll have had a cabinet reshuffle by then, a shadow cabinet reshuffle. Those all-important pre-election conferences will be looming. And as I say, tickets on the King's Place website or with the podcast blurb. Okay, now let's go to our Question Time special, which will knock the socks off the BBC Question Time. You know, are you bastard? Noise, noise, noise. Um, And first of all, yeah, just a summary for those of you who mysteriously don't subscribe to the Patreon version. We had a great live conversation and delved deep last week together and some of the listeners and members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative appeared on screen and it was exciting for me to see them because, I, yeah, I kind of feel I know everyone anyway and, yeah, I don't, if you know what I mean. Um... Yeah, I'm, see, I'm going mad. 
Anyway, um, we we delved deep. It was the it was the Monday we did it after the three by elections. And by the way, it's very interesting that these by elections are still, I think, framing the thinking about politics during the recess. The sort of hint of ambiguity in the results and the complexity, I think, kind of frame the. I don't know what you feel the political mood is. I mean, everyone's on bloody holiday. I hope you all are as well. You're doing this while you're running on a coastal path or cooking dinner with chilled white wine after a swim in the sea or escaping the insane heat or whatever. But I think there is a sort of odd, ambiguous mood in the air that might have been different if the results had been different. But anyway, we delve deep. And there have been a lot since from some of those who joined the discussion. I didn't have time to read out. We've got lots of Q&A in the chat session. Well, join in. I'm going to do another one in uh, early autumn for Patreon. But anyway, Venetia Kane was one of those who came on talking about the Summerton and Froome by-election, which, of course, the Lib Dems gained pointing out that there's no such thing as a safe seat anymore because it was a Lib Dem seat for a long time. Then it had a big Tory majority in December 2019. And I assume that reflected quite a high Brexit vote in Summerton and Froome. But apparently, Venetia Kane got in touch to say that actually it was quite close between Remain and Brexit. But anyway, for sure, it became a big Tory majority. It's now back with the Lib Dems. Yeah, I, I don't know if any of you heard my kind of tax and spend thinking recently. When out of the blue on page eight of the Times or something emerged that uh, Jeremy Hunt had an extra four billion quid that wasn't going to be there because of wage inflation uh, for Treasury revenue. You know, it's just, it's mad, therefore, the pre-election stuff where everything is treated as if it's all cast in stone for the next five years. But sometimes the Treasury gets unexpected revenue. Sometimes, of course, it doesn't. And a chancellor has to adapt accordingly. But it's not cast in stone, which is how the pre-election tax and spend debate is treated. Patrick Martin wondered, I didn't get time. These are some of the questions that would have been on the live Zoom, just to give you an example of how we ranged and delved. Uh, Why do Labour feel they need to stick to Tory spending plans, if indeed it's those plans that contributed to the mess in the first place? Yeah, well, this is one of the sort of weird contortions of the pre-election tax and spend debate, there's no doubt any almost, I was going to say, objective assessment of the last 13 years would recognise that the austerity measures of the early years and those adopted more recently by Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, who worship at the altar of George Osborne and Nigel Lawson, of course. They all worship at the altar of Nigel Lawson that the failure to invest, the failure to borrow when uh, interest rates, especially for governments, were incredibly cheap, they could have invested and got all kind of things done, uh, were part of the problem. But so too, Patrick, is the problem of anything that goes beyond an assessment from the Tory party of the limits of spending are portrayed in our mighty media as tax bombshells for Labour. And that is the dilemma. You can make an assessment that implies you need more spending, but if you specify more spending, all hell breaks loose. And it is a a great dilemma. 
Uh, Nigel Jones uh, has been reading Anthony Seldon's book, Johnson at Number 10. He was interested in one paragraph. All prime ministers are unusual people, exceptionally talented and individualistic. They see the world differently to the rest of us. But even among recent prime ministers, there was nothing remotely normal about the rise, the summit, or the downfall of Boris Johnson. And Nigel was more interested in that assessment of prime ministers as unusual people. How does Theresa May fit in that? Would Keir Starmer be somewhere in between the Johnson assessment? And what about Sunak? It's interesting. They become unusual people uh, as prime ministers unavoidably because they have to be cocooned. The pressures are intense and continuous. And I've seen them change in different ways and um, be an interesting theme, actually, how they change when they reach the top. Do they begin as unusual? Well, clearly Johnson was odd and unusual in many different ways. I'm not so sure about that. They can be eccentric. Thatcher was somewhat eccentric, actually, as a Tory politician. But she changed in power, especially after the Falklands War, when she sort of thought she was Churchill and became more kind of grand and imperialistic. And after her 87 landslide and third election victory, she did to the point that led towards her doom. But it's an interesting theme. Uh, Susan Lintop was wondering about any scope for nuance in um, the kind of angry polemics that take the form of political debate. You know, so she gives the example that Labour's £28 billion Green plan, which uh, when Rachel Reeves said she was going to delay the £28 billion, becomes abandonment or U-turn. And she was wondering again about the £350 million week money that was going to go to the NHS uh, when we left the EU. That fantasy is uh, amazingly distant now, isn't it? But shocking. And yeah, she wonders about the space for nuance in a Labour framing in the build-up to an election. I don't think there will be space for nuance. And a very artful leader can create some space for a bit of nuance. They could have done it, I think, with the Euler's debate, you know, which had an impact on the Tories holding on to Uxbridge, that by-election which partly frames the mood that we're in now in, at the height of summer. Because when you think about that Euler's debate, in a way, fining people is not the objective. The objective is clean air. So if you're fining people, uh, the policy isn't quite working as intended. You want them to change their cars. And I think somehow... I don't know, a debate needed to be framed and long ago before the by-election got underway where, you know, kind of a panic-stricken Labour candidate changed course halfway through and then suddenly opposed ULES. Uh, does that mean you're opposing the means towards cleaner air? Clearly not. So, yeah, finding the space for nuance is the ultimate challenge in British politics with our media. Philip Gilfus wondered, I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with the boundary changes that will be in place in the next general election. I haven't done much playing with them, Philip. Uh, to the extent you have, does that change maths in various areas and about what can be expected? It's quite interesting with the boundary changes. There was an assumption 
that they would be a big gain to the Tories, the change constituencies. But I have read other interpretations, um, and I think it partly depends in the polling that comes from the uh, new boundaries. So I think it's less clear, Philip, than was once assumed. Hugh Davis in Aberdeen. Aberdeen, Hugh, that's a train journey to Edinburgh. Hope to see you at the festival. Do you find it a little dispiriting that Keir Starmer's quick reaction to the Outsbridge by-election failure was to blame an obviously sensible and progressive ULES policy? Yeah, I, I think the Labour leadership got it wrong on that Friday morning. Uh, what they should have done is just focused on the triumph in Selby. And the more I think about it, it, it was a, a, a great triumph. Here it was, this... Um, absolutely rock-solid Tory seat, more rock-solid than um, where there had been an equivalent swing in December 1994 in Dudley West when Tony Blair was walking on water and Dudley West had sometimes been a Labour seat. It was an epic achievement. But instead, they managed to sort of focus on Uxbridge, blame each other, brief against Ed Miliband, and I think it was a misjudgment. And um, it is, again, partly an opposition artistry. It's about reading rhythms and working out what will happen if you respond in a certain way. And I noticed um, the Daily Mail last Saturday leading on Labour splits on Euless. This is more than a week after that bloody by-election and their response to it. But it gives the Tory newspapers the ammunition to still splash on stories about Labour division. And they, they need to think very carefully when they utter a word about where those words might lead. That's public statements and private briefings. Talking of which Lizzie Price mentioned after the Zoom in an email is about the degree to which the Labour vote might prove to be softer than the polls suggest. She adds, uh, she hopes that's wrong. But I think the question is an interesting one. Polls it's so easy to forget because we are utterly intoxicated at any given moment by opinion polls. They really do shape the mood more than by-elections, actually, because they're constant. And we forget very quickly how inaccurate polls often are. I mean, in the build-up to the 2017 general election, most polls suggested a big majority for Theresa May and the Tory party. And of course, we got a hung parliament. Polls are often wrong. And what they do, I think, is record a moment, and the by-election suggests Labour's lead is substantial, as the polls suggest, but they are not a forecast of a general election, and a great deal is going to happen between now and the election. Tim Barrow, how can Labour best focus attention and future public spending on those issues which are of most interest to the wider electorate, such as the NHS, education and the economy, ideally without losing the support of those smaller numbers on the left for whom net zero and or trans rights trumps all other issues? Will you highlight one of the epic dilemmas for leaders in building up a coalition of support but 
To be honest, it seems to me that in the next election, this sense that Britain isn't working, and by that, uh, it, that means the NHS uh, education to some extent, the economy, obviously, because that is the basis for other things to then work. Transport, I think, is huge. Leveling up should be about trains working properly, linking Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Bradford, in a way that would boost the economy. It's quite interesting, last week Andy Burnham tweeted that now he's taken over the buses after the utterly destructive uh, deregulation of buses in the 1980s, obviously in the greater Manchester area this is. Um, they're already sort of pledged to improving reliability, uh, efficiencies, uh, lowering fares for a lot of the journeys. More people will use them. There will be a higher quality of life and the, it will contribute to economic growth in time. I mean, it's a small measure of buses. You need it with other things as well. But I think these are the areas to be uh, focused on with obviously climate change as a kind of dominant challenge of our times. And in a way, the whole Euless thing got conflated with climate change. See, the whole issue of clean air and diesel cars would still be an issue if there was no climate change issue. So it's in a way, it's separate. It's related in the sense that it's about cleaning up uh, the environment. Uh, but uh, as I say, diesel cars, now we've discovered, they pump out this stuff that gives people terrible uh, breathing difficulties and can kill. Um, you obviously have to get rid of them. And that would be the case with or without climate change. Angus Thomas, though, worries that what does it say about the likelihood that Labour will make significant changes towards net zero when, in the face of a narrow loss in Uxbridge, the Labour leadership have responded by blaming Sadiq Khan? Well, you know... The, we will know more and more about Keir Starmer in the coming year, and even more if he becomes prime minister. As I say, we don't, uh, they, they don't arrive fully formed in number 10. They arrive in number 10 as a figure who has led their party to an election victory. And that tells us something about a figure. So we learned quite a lot about Blair between 94 to 97. There was a lot to be learned about Thatcher between 75 and 79, but it was not the full story. And Starmer's route to power, if it proves to be such a route, has been very interesting and unusual. Um, but then we will find out more about uh, whether he has the strength and persuasive powers to stick a course rather than running a mile. Andy maybe says, whilst baking uh, this week's pud, lemon meringue pie, since you asked, I certainly did ask. I like to know what people in the cooperative are cooking. I wondered if you could delve a bit deeper on the chances of an early election, which Andy thinks is possible. Um, well, be no time for lemon meringue pie cooking if we get an early election, Andy, but be assured we won't be getting an early election. There is no way this autumn Sunak will sit there thinking, yeah, I'm 20 points behind, but I might be 30 points behind next year, so I'll go. There is um, a possibility of May. Some people think it's the most likely date. I still think autumn 2024. So we can, in the cooperative, we've still got a bit of space, not much, to do other things to the benefit of the cooperative, from baking to running to drinking a chilled glass of white wine or whatever. 
Jeff Strange from his idyll in Ireland. Can you explain to the cooperative why on earth Farage gets so much airtime on the BBC, either on Question Time or BBC, the BBC Today programme? Well, this is an interesting one. We haven't actually focused in the uh, Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, and I haven't had many questions on it, actually. Farage and his bank, Coots Bank, which has dominated the front pages and the broadcasting outlets for what seems like about 25 years. And um, I, th I think there are several reasons for it. Partly, Farage is one of the few uh, really good communicators in British politics today. And the media needs them. You know, they, they lap them up. And for reasons that we might all go into together in a podcast, there is a real decline in uh, communicators who can engage with an audience. There used to be loads of them. And the decline began in the mid 90s, I think, mid to late 90s. But even then, there were more than there are now. He is a natural communicator. He speaks to an interviewer as he speaks to someone privately and as he speaks to a hall. And I think that's one of the reasons for it. I think another is still at the BBC. They think Farage speaks for the people in certain parts of the country, even though he's never won a seat to the House of Commons and is not now sort of in an official political position. He's a presenter on GB News. Um, that's another. But the third is this banking thing is quite interesting on so many different levels. I mean, first of all, it begs the question again about how Farage and the likes of Johnson have managed to convince a number of voters that they are one of them, part of the people against the establishment, when his row is over his account being blocked at Coots Bank, this posh, posh, posh bank for the establishment. Um, but there are interesting questions too about the imperious nature of banks who uh, are dependent on us, as was demonstrated in the 2008 financial crash, an event that has been, isn't it interesting with politics and memory? It's another event that is fading fast. We had to step in to save the banks, and yet still there they are out there behaving with an imperious swagger. Um, so I think there were kind of lots of reasons why he featured, um, but the BBC used him too much. That's another thing, laziness at the BBC. Oh yeah, who can we get on um, that's pro-Brexit and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, oh yeah, let's get Nigel Farage on. It's, a, it's an easy booking. Um, and if one program does it, another does it, and then another does it. And so that's another element to it, Jeff. Charles uh, Prince says, the main point is being missed vis-a-vis uh, -vis the whole Euless thing. Khan's argument assumes the scheme is an essential element in cleaning up the air pollution in London, and people must eventually accept it to achieve that goal. Perhaps, though, they need some help, such as a more generous scrappage scheme or whatever. But essentially, they need to accept the scheme to achieve the laudable aim of eliminating pollution. But you said it, Charles, there needs to be a transitional period. Don't knock the idea of transitional periods. I think I mentioned it in an earlier podcast. You know, the closing of the mines in the 1980s was an act of brutality when it could have been, if done properly, an act of liberation. Speak to children of miners. Michael Parkinson used to 
do a lot on this. He was utterly determined not to follow his father down the mines. And they closed the pits, uh, but they didn't put anything in its place. There was no transition either, uh, and communities died. Now, that was on a much bigger scale than this uh, Euless thing affecting a few um, areas of the country and not many people in those areas. Although I was speaking to a, one of the great Labour uh, figures the other day, and a very perceptive one, who told me that he picked up in Uxbridge owners of those Elon Musk cars were saying, oh, blimey, we don't want to pay this. You know, well, they're, they're the ultimate. They, they embody, don't they? They are emblematic of the alternative course of, uh, what are they called? I almost bought one, uh, the Elon Musk ones. Um, but anyway, uh, they, they thought they were going to be charged it. I mean, the whole thing was uh, crazy. But you do need, as you suggest, generous scrappage schemes and all the rest of it. If it looks as if a constituency is being punished, they won't buy into it in the way that they should. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Over to Curtis McLeod, very long-time listener, often in my car during my commute. I have, though, listened whilst foraging for elderflowers to make elderflower champagne or slow berries for Christmas slow gin if the cooperative needs a home brewer to bring the delights of our countryside for a tipple or two, sign me up. Well, that is an offer and a half, Curtis. You're signed up, and we all expect some Christmas slow gin for Christmas, if not before because we all need cheering up. These are challenging times. So thank you for that offer. Anyway, so my point relates to Labour's election chances and that dreaded nebulous word, reform. Yeah, we're going to hear more of reform in the autumn, I suspect. And uh, oh, take a deep breath. It strikes me that the electorate would welcome more honesty and straight talking from our politicians. There was a time when they'd willingly start a national debate with a healthy dose of crafted storytelling. Keir has his opportunity with issues such as intergenerational differences. And Curtis suggests hypothecated taxes, earmarked taxes, would help create more clarity and trust. I agree with that. The level of appetite for truth-telling, though, I'm not so sure about Curtis in a pre-election period. I can't remember a pre-election period where candor was the dominant theme. But I do agree with you, if you want to build up trust, hypothecated taxes, terrible word, earmarked taxes, the Treasury don't like it because it's kind of restrictive and constraining. But that is the way you make connections with voters, I think. Anyway, on we go. Oh, yeah. Charles Joynson says, I've been listening to the podcast for 18 months, enjoy regularly discussing episodes with my friends, Harry and Jay, is it? Or Joy? Jay, I think, who are longer-term listeners than I. Hello to all three of you. Thank you for not only listening, but reflecting on the 
deep, deep themes. Um, and Charles says, oh yeah, I came across this as well. I came across an article in the Times of the infamous Lord Frosty Frost declaring that rising temperatures will help Britain as more people die from cold than the heat. Oh yeah, he, he said this in the House of Lords. Uh, this figure unelected only in the Lords because of Johnson's indiscriminate patronage. Of course, he resigned from Johnson's government very soon after getting the job. And there he is. This this is kind of five-year-old talking. Oh, yeah, it's a bit warmer. Well, that's better because we, when we get cold, we fall ill. You know, you could see a five-year-old writing that essay. That is his level. And he negotiated Britain's Brexit. That's why we're all in despair, really. The role of Frosty Frost. John Hodgson, another point from the Zoom discussion. Read the Labour vote. Yeah, this is important. Because I said, well, actually, Selby might not be that good. It was something Pippa Crera said to me on the week in Westminster, that she had looked at it in a bit more depth, that Selby result. And it was mainly uh, Labour's victory following Tory voters staying at home. But this is an important corrective from John. He says... If we use the historic pre-landslide Dudley West by-election as a historical president, the Labour vote actually fell then by 540. And that, that was that huge swing in December 1994 to Labour. So, yeah, that's a good, good point. Anyway, look forward to the next episode. Wish uh, could get to Edinburgh or indeed that we could get you to the wonderful Latitude Festival. Well, the time might come. But get to Edinburgh, John. We're going to have some fun. But that isn't a corrective. So even in Dudley, which I covered actually for the BBC, December 94, massive swing to Labour. It was a low turnout again, as often is the case in by-elections. Look, there were loads of other questions emailed this week, um, which is why I turned it into a question time special at the height of this um, summer period. Not that we're getting much sun, in, <laughs> you know, but... Um, who knows? Uh, some great questions. Joel uh, Rawlings, great question about um, whether lower interest rates would be a much better pledge uh, from a government or an aspiring government than cutting taxes. But of course, that's been handed over to the Bank of England, Joel. And Gordon Brown got much praise for it at the time. And it was a very, very clever construction because although it made the Bank of England independent, actually, as Chancellor, he had quite a big input still in selecting the Monetary Policy Committee and setting the frames of reference. But that does mean the government can't really pull that lever, even though sometimes they have wanted to in various ways. Anyway, yeah, well, look, that has been an epic question time. Looking forward to more question times during the show at the Edinburgh Festival. So I hope you can come along. Take a break from sending me emails during the rest of the summer recess because I'm going to be doing uh, specials in this podcast. And I say, if you subscribe to Patreon, one of the recordings, I think I said this last week, it's like the arrangements is like recording the Rolling Stones will be on that Patreon site, hopefully, uh, if we get it all sorted for a bonus podcast for August. Um, yeah, well, if you're working, work hard. If you're having a break, take a break. I mean, keep on thinking by joining me every week through this uh, period. And hopefully, most of us will get together in Edinburgh or King's Place in uh, London in September. Don't forget Edinburgh from August the 13th. And if you like the podcast and listen to it regularly, do pass it on to friends, do subscribe. And if you can leave a review, but only if you liked it, as I've stressed before, 
don't leave it. Forget it. Don't waste time if you don't like it. But if you do like it, please do leave uh, a review. And yeah, let's all get together again next week. In the meantime, thanks for brilliant questions and listening and thinking and wishing to delve deep, even if we don't always pull it off. And uh, yeah, see you again very shortly. Thank you. Bye. Bye.